Welcome to The Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. Today I'm speaking with Mariam Mona Lisa Gharavi, who is an artist, writer, and theorist. Mona Lisa did an MFA in film and video and a PhD in comparative literature and film and visual studies at Harvard University and held a postdoctoral Fulbright and visiting professorship. She has been a lecturer in history and literature at Harvard and at New York University and Northeastern University. She has written several books and founded the Oil Research Group as a one-woman artist collective that explores the relationship between oil and data. She lives and works in New York. I met Mona Lisa randomly in the back of a shared Uber ride from a vision science conference in Florida. We started talking and I thought she was so cool to listen to, so I invited her on my podcast. And after a few months and several delays and cancellations, this conversation finally happened. In this first part, Mona Lisa shares the story of her life so far, beginning with moving from Tehran to the U.S. at a young age and realizing at some point in her childhood that she was artistically gifted. Okay, so the the first question I have is something that I ask a lot of my guests just to get a better sense of, you know, the person that they are. And um, so it's basically, I'm just trying to get a little bit of an idea of your background, not so much like your professional history, because that can be found like online and things like that, but a little bit more about more of your like early life, childhood upbringing, and then how did you get into, you know, doing the kind of like art, literature, poetry that you're doing today? That's a really deep question. You know, it's a deep question. Mm -hmm. I, I sometimes wonder about telling that story and how much of it is like your story and mm -hmm. then how much of it is intertwined with the story of others, like your caretakers, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, I was born in Iran, in Tehran. Mm, I like okay. to think of it as like being born in the city of 20 million in a concrete jungle. Mm -hmm. Um, and anyway, I mean, that has a somewhat of a contiguous line for me with li living in the East coast, for example, or a city like New York, which for some reason gives me a lot of comfort despite mm the the discomforts of urban living. I think I was around six or seven when my family immigrated to the United States, and I would say that that event, the event of immigration itself, is something that I'm still untangling. Mm -hmm. One, because it set up such a different pathway than were I to be the kind of person that was raised in the same country and culture and family and all of that uh, and, and wasn't. And we also didn't necessarily stay in one place um, due to the circumstances of my upbringing and my father's obtaining of education and 
professional pursuits, um, we were moved a lot. Mm -hmm. So it was that one move, um, like the move, and then the subsequent smaller moves to the point that I think I once counted it and it was 15 moves by the time I was 13. So quite, quite unpredictable and in some ways like stable and in other ways, vastly unstable, uh, kind of environment for, I think a young, a young mind, a young Mm. person in, like I said, in ways that I'm constantly untangling. Uh, I remember the very first time that I think I wrote something or created an artwork and maybe this sounds juvenile, but I was literally a juvenile, mm-hmm. uh, for consumption by a, an audience. And it was when I was seven at Fernbank elementary in Atlanta, mm-hmm. Georgia. And there's a famous astronomy center there too. So imagine coming from, you know, Iran, you don't speak English. Uh, and then quickly you do speak English cause you're so young. And then, you know, this giant astronomy center and, and a very interesting kind of environment. I really love that elementary school, but I overheard my teacher saying there's a contest and we should get the kids to submit to this contest contest. I think it was like, you had to write a poem about friendship, <laughs> something like that. And so I just remember like sitting at my desk and doing that and then submitting it and winning. And then oh, the wow. next time the same thing happened and it was like, draw something. And I remember this because it was such a, was it the nineties? Yeah. It was such a moment. And it was like, you remember dare, like say no to drugs kind of things. Yeah. So it was like, how do we get the kid? We have to set up a contest to get the kids to draw something against drugs. And I mean, who, how did I know what drugs were? I don't think I knew what drugs were, you know? And, uh, so I made a, I made a drawing and that ended up winning. And I think it won me some money too. Like it was some kind of, I'm not kidding you. It was like some government issued bond that I've never actually, you know, liquidated. So somewhere Mm. in Atlanta, Georgia is like some kind of government bond issued to me for this drawing. But I think that was like the first time where I was like, oh, I get it. I'm not just making something in my own small container, but mm. other people will see it and it will no longer just be mine. I I think that was the first experience of that. And mm. later, maybe I was 10, uh, we moved to the Caribbean for several years. And so a vastly different cultural environment, uh, especially given that my family was very markedly Muslim. So Mm. we lived in the Caribbean as these foreigners. Um, So not white, not black and not Indian, because Mm. those were like the three dominant, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, ethnicities. And that was an interesting experience on its own. But I remember meeting a girl, one of my peers who had a little book with her. And she was just sort of a happy loner and she would walk around with this book just writing down notebook writing down poems to herself and she took it very seriously she was like i these are serious this is serious work for me and again mm. we were like all of 10 years old 
And I really admired that. And I had friends at school also who drew better than me. I remember like feeling a little bit comparative at that time because mm-hmm. I had a friend at school, this Russian immigrant, and her trees were really beautiful. So uh-huh. I was like, I wish I could draw my palm trees as beautifully as hers. And then this other girl's, you know, believed in herself enough to create that, that you know, basically book of her own poems at age 10 and and on and on and on so Mm -hmm. I think it came like that I don't I don't know that uh I I certainly didn't feel any encouragement at least oh that that's your kitten so sweet I didn't know she was in the room okay yeah yeah. so sometimes they know Mm. sometimes they can sense the Mm -hmm. sense you having a conversation and maybe want to get in on the action yeah um yeah, I think it was just maybe writing feels like something that is DNA born, mm. if that makes any sense. And mm. my decision to be an artist and to formalize myself as an artist, I would consider that an, 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 a, a decision. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas I don't know that writing in particular has ever been just a decision, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, it feels mm-hmm. like the thing I kind of almost take for granted because it it just sort of comes. Uh, I've had some people be very encouraging to me over the years and and less so. My experience of the American educational system could probably be its own volume on a shelf. Very, very, sometimes very traumatizing experience of U.S. education. And then sometimes, especially in high school, where I had teachers who were very encouraging and took my writing and took my work very seriously, uh, it went in the other direction. But I definitely remember more than one instance, and they were often white, middle-aged, middle-class kind of teacher profiles in all sorts of you know environments and states and schools that I grew up in that really cast doubt on what I was doing. Mm. Uh, my first experience of detention was in that same school and that I mentioned before in elementary school. And it was because I finished an assignment earlier than the other students. And because I wasn't following directions and I finished an assignment early, Mm. they put me in detention. Like my parents had to come in and this was really traumatizing. I think like, Mm. you know, if you're someone who wants to do the right thing, you don't want to stand out any more than you are already standing out you are shuffled between lots of different I remember I went to English as a second language school and I had to take a bus to do that and so to be punished for that was a really like a real mm. injury uh, I felt really ashamed mm. and later I remember teachers casting doubt on whether I had actually completed an assignment like we read Huckleberry Finn and I had to write an essay on Huck Finn and the teacher forced me to stay after school and said, you know, I know this isn't your work. I know that this is borrowed from cliff notes. And I thought like, I legitimately remember saying, what are cliff notes? I I didn't know what she was talking about. I, Hmm. you know, and that those, I haven't thought about them in a long time, but those injuries in the educational system Hmm. somehow didn't completely crush me, which is, which is good. It's good Hmm. to know that, you know, there's still these, sparks or or dregs of a of some kind of artistic vision mm. some kind of um wanting to communicate i remember 
I think it was on a podcast listening to this artist in New York define what it is to be an entertainer. And they said that to entertain, the etymology of entertain is to deliver the information at the correct time. Mm. And I really love that. And I think in some ways it applies to art as well. Like, how do you communicate the information at the right time? How do you deliver the information? And I think that impulse has always been very strong, but I have to say it's come at, it's been quite costly Mm. in terms of these experiences of U.S. education um, throughout the years and also not necessarily having a certain encouragement at home. I think it was just like, Mm -hmm. you know, my, my parents were often working very hard to try to have anything like the same level or lifestyle that they might have enjoyed in Mm -hmm. Iran and as immigrants, uh, that was certainly not a given. And so I don't think, you know, checking in like, Hey, how's it going? How's, how's your work going? I don't think that was in any way at Mm -hmm. all a part of their psyche. Uh, mm. I, I always just sort of was very education or I was very intellectually motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess that takes us to around maybe 16, 17, when I took the idea of college very seriously, I wanted to just be done with high school. I was so over it and I got in, I got into schools and ultimately decided to go to California to go to Berkeley. Um, my parents <laughs> were were not really too pleased with that. Um, they thought it was too far away. Mm-hmm. They wanted me to stay closer. I think I went farther away than anyone in my graduating class. And eventually, uh, due to some of our differences and, you know, dissonance, mm. um, I ended up paying for school. I ended up uh, emancipating myself. I went through a court process to financially emancipate myself so that I could take out some loans and pay out of student out of out of state student fees. Mm. That was a big deal to me at the time. I didn't know anyone else going through that, you know. Um I was very excited to be at a school like Berkeley where as one of my black classmates said, he felt like a pixel on a computer screen. Um and I think I don't want to take away from his experience, but I certainly had moments of feeling that way. It's like 40,000 people all stuffed in this space together. And I was working a lot. I was mm. really excited by, by the level of education I was getting there. A lot of, a lot of it actually taught by graduate students. So you can see the, the fraying of academia already in these early two thousands when I was in college, but really smart graduate students and, and professors and didn't really have any, I didn't have an ambition to go to graduate school at all. It mm. never crossed my mind. I can genuinely say that. I I think I was just sort of following a thread, following Ariadne's thread. And I worked under uh, a professor. Her name is Linda Williams. She's, um, I, I think, a leading light in film studies. Uh, she's someone who's, whose work was up to then pretty important um, in surrealism and looking at cinema and sex. Um, she, she wrote a book, a pretty seminal book on pornography. And she told me in her office, like, 
hey, I think this thesis sample you've, you're writing, this is going to be, this, this, this is a good writing sample for graduate school. And that was the first time I think I had ever come to this idea that, oh, I might just continue going, continue developing this, uh, this intellectual fount. And, and so I did, uh, I worked mm. for a year after college, I worked in the film industry, uh, which solidified my desire to never do that again. I mean, it mm. wasn't just the film industry. It was like a kind of television and film industry, which is, which is profoundly, um, uh, based on political, um, m- the political will of the country because it's mm-hmm. based on grants and funding from the U S government. It was a really dark time. It was after nine 11. So very conservative vision. Um, I really didn't want to work in television and in, in that industry ever again. And I decided to just go for it, uh, and took Linda's advice and submitted some applications and, um, yeah, ended up in graduate school. Yeah, you know, um, something that I felt even before, even the time that we were in the back of the Uber talking is, um, and I'm feeling it again, is I feel like it's very enriching for me to just be sitting here listening to you. And as you were talking, I was trying to figure out why that is the case. And I have had this experience a couple of times with some other people in my life. And I think it always happens when It feels like you're being very like real when you're like sharing. And I think a, a lot of the times when I'm having a conversation, there are so many layers that have accumulated where a person is like doing something, but I'm not really. Yeah. So I feel like it's like kind of a privilege to be listening to someone speaking from like a very authentic and vulnerable place. Um, and also just being very real. Thanks for joining Mona Lisa and myself today in the Room of Lives. In the next part, I ask her where her ideas come from. And she walks me through how she conceived her work that she calls Life of Muhammad. Mm-hmm.